You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Good morning, Stanford. I'll tell you, seeing so many students up this early in the morning is really a great experience for the president of the university. And I'm so delighted you're able to join us here, and I can tell you're going to be in for a fascinating discussion this morning. If you think about our university and what makes it unique, it is that bold entrepreneurial spirit, that pioneering spirit that Jane and Leland brought to us when they marched across the country to come to the West Coast and help found this university. Today, we remain committed to pursuing opportunities that will change the world, to using our knowledge in important ways to work on the grand challenges we face. But that entrepreneurial spirit is about more than just launching the next startup. It's also about training and educating people who will go out and make our world better. And those innovations come in all walks, from the medical care we do and new ways of dealing with health problems, to energy efficiency, to robotics, to art, to everything we do. But every innovation begins with an idea, and every idea began with somebody who imagined it. And that's what today is about. The Stanford Technology Venture Program's Future Fest is an opportunity to examine and celebrate the impact of breakthroughs and pioneering technologies on our world. And I'm delighted you could all join us this morning. This is organized by STBP in collaboration with Stanford Arts. The Future Fest will be the place where discussions about futuristic technologies occur. And today we'll hear from two far-thinking individuals, Elon Musk and Steve Jurvetson. Steve is a Stanford alum and a partner at Draper Fisher Jurvetson. He was recently hailed in the New York Times as a space investor and rocket maker. His firm has invested both in SpaceX and a satellite company, Planet Labs. Steve is a Stanford alumnus three times over, and he also has the important characteristic that he was once my advisee. Despite that disadvantage, he completed his bachelor's degree in electrical engineering in two and a half years, was the Henry Ford Scholar, went on to earn his MS, and despite my attempts to convince him to pursue a PhD, went off and got his MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where he was an R.J. Miller Scholar. He's recognized widely for being forward-thinking. The San Francisco Chronicle and Examiner named him as one of the 10 people expected to have the greatest impact on the Bay Area in the early part of the 21st century. Now, Elon Musk, I think, is a name known to everybody who thinks about the future. He is a serial entrepreneur, inventor, engineer, and investor. He was born in South Africa, attended Queen's University in Canada before moving to the U.S., where he earned his undergraduate degrees in economics and physics from the University of Pennsylvania. He arrived at Stanford to pursue his Ph.D. in physics, but left after two days. <laughs> I said, what was wrong, Along Was it the food, the water, the weather? No, he left to launch his first startup, Zip2, a successful Internet-based city guide, and then he went on to launch PayPal. He founded his third company, SpaceX, in 2002, and six years later, NASA awarded him a contract for cargo transport to the International Space Station. He was an early investor in Tesla Moda and now leads the company as its CEO and product architect. But Elon dreams big. As he told CNN a few years ago, we should not be afraid of doing something just because some amount of tragedy is likely to occur. If our forefathers had taken that approach, the United States wouldn't exist. Amen to that. I think when you see the kind of work that Elon's doing, and I still remember my first trip down to Los Angeles to visit SpaceX and to see the first Tesla prototype before it came out, I realized he was going to change the world. This will be a wonderful exchange. After Steve and Elon's discussion, Matt Harvey, Executive Director of STVP, will close the program. But now, please join me in giving a warm Stanford welcome to Elon Musk and Steve Jurvetson.
Thank you, President Hennessy. And uh, this is a daunting venue. I feel like we should sing or something. Yeah. Dance, perhaps? Wow. Okay, so uh, Future Fest. Uh, today is all about the future, and uh, I can't imagine a better person to speak with about that than Elon Musk. He is forging the future, as you all know, across multiple industries repeatedly in the most spectacular way, in a way that others have failed before him and uh, perhaps unprecedented in history. So I'm a big fanboy. Future Fest originally, I think, bounced around and why this month, because this is a special month for Future Fest, is that uh, for those of you old enough, and it looks like maybe five or six of you in the audience to have been around when Back to the Future, the movie, came out, they had this vision of the future in the second edition of that series where they fast-forwarded in a time warp to the future. And it was October 2015. And uh, they had flying cars and hoverboards and biometrics and video calls and what looked like Google Glass a lot of the times and a lot of other stuff that was completely cockamamie. But... Um, some of those dreams were true, some were not. And as a framework for Future Fest, we can think to the past and our dreams that did or didn't come true. I think that's where we'll start and then move to the future. We're sitting here today. What do we think the future may bode? So turn to Elon maybe as a, as, a, as a starting point. As you think back to your high school days 30 years ago when we were both there and dreaming of that future, what about today is or isn't in accordance with what you thought back then? I mean, where, where have your dreams of the future, the bold visions, met or not met reality today? Well, I think the, the, the most remarkable thing that we, we do have today is the, the Internet um, and access to all the world's information from anywhere. So that, that's... You know, having a supercomputer in your pocket is, I think, something people wouldn't have predicted, um, you know, in Back to the Future. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, the, that's the biggest thing, um, and, uh, and probably the, 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 what they would be most surprised at is that we haven't progressed more in space. Mm. Um, so <clears throat> the people would have expected, I think, to have a space hotel. In fact, Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, yeah. 2001. 2001 yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, thought 2010 was really crazy, you know, in terms <laughs> of space advancement. So we would, like, be going to Jupiter and that kind of thing. So that, that's probably, like, the most surprising thing. Like, particularly if you go back even further, if you say... In '69, when um, people first landed on the moon, um, if you'd ask people, if you'd ask the, the public, what, uh, what what would the situation be in 2015? I think they would imagine that we're we would have a base on the moon, a base on Mars, and be you know all over the solar system by now. Mm -hmm. That's probably the biggest. So what happened? I mean, is there any pattern you can sense for where our dreams and science fiction realities drift from reality and where they are reality? Is there is there some Reason you think, like, as you because we have dreams today of where the you know that we're going to have these Mars colonies in the near future, and uh, yeah, well, unless something jumps to mind, let me let me. I have a bunch of questions, by the way, from the audience right. as well. Here, I want to I want to move to something a little more current as we move forward in time. Twenty years ago, when we first met, you were starting your first internet company of two, the one before PayPal, uh, Zip Two, and I know that in your youth, you envisioned a variety of industries that needed to change. Um, when you were pursuing your first one, did you imagine you would get to the next one and the next one? Or? No. no, I mean, I, the, when I was in college, I just thought, well, what are the things that are most likely to affect the future of humanity, just in, you know, at a macro level? And um, it just seemed like there would be, like, the Internet and sustainable energy, uh, making life multiplanetary, um, and then genetics and AI. And I thought the first three, if you worked on those, they were, like, almost certainly going to be good, and then the, the, the last two a little more dodgy. <laughs> In terms of the net benefit? Yeah. It's with a double-edged sword, and you're not sure which edge is the worst. Interesting. So it, would, it seems like begging the question, are genetics and AI the ones that are ripe for students today to be thinking about as they look at the future? I mean, they are. Yeah. Um, my, my cousin, I have a younger cousin who's just finishing up um, uh, sort of a, a physics and computer science degree, uh, actually at Berkeley. <laughs> um, <laughs> we know. <weenie. laughs> and um, and he's, uh, he says everyone there is in the computer science department is working on AI. So, uh, I mean, I think we're going to see some crazy breakthroughs in, in the next few years on that front. Yeah. I want to come back to that later as we look more to your vision of the future. 
as you, as you think back, though, to your younger self, where, you know, many of the people in the audience are themselves college students and either undergrad or grad programs and are thinking about the world they're entering. And I'm curious, this may be an odd question, but one that I find fascinating. As you think here today back to your younger self, is there any advice you wish you could have given your younger self with hindsight, given what you know now? Well, I mean, I give like a lot of advice. (laughs) (laughs) Dating, a whole bunch of things like that. Yeah, Yeah, I got you. But it's just in terms of uh, how to how to think about a life trajectory, perhaps, or um, how to pursue your passions. I mean, I, I mean I'm, I'm reasonably happy with how things turned out. Um, <laughs> so it's like <laughs> touche. <laughs> yeah, not terrible. Um, yeah, that's a good point. So, <laughs> uh, I think like, if there's anything, um, I'll let you. If something jumps to mind, let me know, but let me... Uh... I mean, apart from the obvious, like, just telling, telling my younger self exactly how the future will unfold, which is... Right. But, but that, that, you know, wouldn't be... That, that, that's not exactly advice. More has to be encapsulated into non... Sort of like, right. Time-warping wisdom, yeah. Yeah, exactly, like wisdom. Um, um, I mean, I mean there's, there's, there's a lot of things. I mean, it's sort of... I mean, certainly... Um, yeah, I mean... Uh, you know... Listen, listen more to critical feedback. Um, you know, uh, I mean, like a lot of things I learned in college actually were pretty helpful. I mean, the, I think the physics approach to thinking is very good, like the first principles approach. Um, and you uh, applied that broadly. Yeah, applied, applying the first principles approach to thinking um, is, I think, a, a good way to uh, figure out a counterintuitive um, situations. Um, and... Um, you know, so I thought that was that was really a helpful thing to learn. Um, That's good. Yeah, I so, mean, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no uh, feel free to jump in if, because I, I don't know how I'd answer that question. I mean, other than yeah. What would you do? What would you tell your younger self? <laughs> <laughs> It'll be all right. You weren't as dorky as you think. There'd be no advice like that. Nothing really too actionable. Don't worry yeah. about it. Well, just don't be so insecure about everything you're insecure about. Yeah, would probably be advice to myself. But uh, let's move on. <laughs> I'm not used to thinking about me. Um, so you know, I, I may be r- roughly overgeneralizing here, but it seems to me that there's some tr- often a trigger problem that generates in your mind a great solution for when you come up with a new company. So, for example, when trying to negotiate with the Russians for launch capacity, the, the aha that we should just build a better rocket to solve this problem comes forth. Or when you uh, deal with the commute on the 405 or whatever in L.A., it's like, oh my God, what is wrong with mass transit and, and perhaps Hyperloop? And then, you know, with, with, uh, with a variety of ideas, there seems to be some trigger, something that's broken in the world, that, and, and you have the idea of how to fix it. And I guess... What I'm curious about is not how you've picked the areas of interest and the solutions, but how have you decided what not to fix? In other words, there's many things that need fixing in the world, and students here probably could think of a long list, many of which you could probably imagine solutions to using the physics first principle approach. But has there been any framework or idea you've used to filter out what you don't do, what you don't pursue? Um, Yeah, I mean, well, if if, if sort of follow the... What, what I did initially was, um, you know, I, well, you go back to like college times. I was working on um, energy storage technologies for electric vehicles, mm-hmm. um, and that's what I was going to pursue at Stanford. Actually, was work on um, like advanced capacitors and batteries to improve uh, the energy density for electric vehicles. Um, and then the internet was kind of happening. It was clear like the internet was happening like back in like ninety four, ninety five. And uh, and I wasn't sure if what I worked on in the PhD would actually be useful. Mm. So I was like, I was really concerned that if I why st- timing or what was no, your intuition? Meaning, I think like or it could be academically useful, but not practically useful. Um, like I think you, you could result in a PhD and adding some leaf to the tree of knowledge, uh, but then then discovering that well, it's not really gonna gonna matter. Like that's you know, is it is it gonna be a a good enough thing to actually be used in an electric vehicle. I wasn't sure. I mean, so it was like, I was uncertain as to whether success was one of the possible outcomes. Right. Like I thought maybe it was, but I wasn't sure. And, and then I thought, well, if I 
watch the internet get built while I'm doing this, um, that, that, that would be really frustrating. Um, so there's a sense of that eminent timing, that like, that was the time for the internet, and maybe yeah. the other stuff could wait, or be on the back yeah, back exactly. corner of your mind. Was it always there, is like, one day I'll get back to that, or was it um, just like... Yeah, I thought probably I'd get back to it, and mm-hmm. did, did end up doing that. Um, but, yeah, I thought sort of the, the, the internet was, was happening, it, like, really taking off, um, although most people weren't aware of it in 95. Um, and, uh, and so I, th- I figured, like, electric vehicle technology, energy storage technology, there will, there will be some sort of natural progression in that, and I could come back to it later. Um, but the Internet, you know, was, was really, that was the moment to, to really do something. Um, although in, in 95, it wasn't obvious that you could actually make any money on the Internet. This was, like, no, nobody, until Netscape went public, I think, at the end of 95, um, Nobody even thought there was, like, uh, you could make a valuable company on the Internet. It wasn't as obvious as it seems now. Yeah, like, now it seems really obvious, but back then it was not at all. Um, So it was really from the perspective of, it wasn't like, oh, I want to make a bunch of money. It was actually from, it's like, oh, I want to just be part of pulling this thing that I thought was, like, like a nervous system. It was, like, previously people had communicated effectively by osmosis. And, um, you know, you'd have to, like, basically physically... You know, connect with somebody to, to really communicate. Um, you know, like a letter, like you'd send letters, like that, <laughs> on paper. <laughs> um, and with the internet, anyone who had a connection anywhere in the world would have access to all the world's information, just like sort of a nervous system in a sort like. So humanity was effectively becoming a superorganism, um, and, and qualitatively different than uh, what it had been before. And so I wanted to be part of that. And uh, um, yeah, so. But, but initially the goal was just to make enough money to pay the rent. It wasn't, um, you know, to do anything beyond that. And then as many know, that much of that capital then got plowed back into your next businesses. Right, right, exactly. The, yeah. Exactly. So then the, and, and then the Internet is also helpful because it's anything to do with software is a low capital endeavor. So I didn't have any money. Um, I just had a bunch of student debt. And um, so this, but, but software you can just write, like by yourself. Um, and you don't need a lot of atoms, like you don't need a, a lot of tooling and equipment, and um, so it's not capital intensive. Um, so the ability to start a company, um, if it's software related, and it's the first company, is much much easier. Right. Right. Um, and yeah. it seems obvious now that of course the easier place to start, and then as you gain more of a personal reputation and have more personal right. capital, as, as some may or may not know, SpaceX was almost. It was entirely funded by Elon for its first period, partially from, you know, and, and in an era when others probably wouldn't have funded it right, in those early days. Well, and actually, I mean, the, the precursor to, to SpaceX was not, the, the, the idea wasn't really to create a company. It was, um, it was to, to try to figure out why we hadn't um, gone to send people to Mars. So, um, so, so we went from SIP2 to, to PayPal and then... Um, and then going from PayPal to sort of the next thing, I was sort of thinking, well, um, is there some way to reignite the dream of Apollo? Um, and I, th- I thought, well, it was maybe a question of, like, we'd lost the will to explore it. Um, but I actually think that, that, that my original premise was wrong. We'd not lost the will to explore, but people did not think there was a way. Mm-hmm. And if people don't think there's a way, then they, they just they won't bash their head against the wall continuously. They'll, you know, they'll sort of give up. So... Um, but, but, in, but in the beginning, I thought it was a question of will. So, <clears throat> so that would, if we can send a small greenhouse to the surface of Mars and you, and, um, you have seeds and uh, nutrient gel and you hydrate it upon landing and then you'd have this little greenhouse on the surface of Mars and people tend to respond to precedents and superlatives. And this would be the first life on Mars as far as we knew. Whether that life's ever traveled, you have this great shot of green plants on a red background and I thought, well, that maybe that would get people excited about sending people to Mars. So the headlines were clear in your mind once you had success yeah. on what that would lead to to catalyze action. And, and, and actually, the, the goal was, was to get the public excited about that and get um, NASA's budget increased. So that, that was actually the, the original goal. And um, so I went to Russia to try to buy some ICBMs in 2001. Um, <laughs> It's an interesting experience. <laughs> a lot of vodka. Uh, yeah, a lot of vodka. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. Um, and uh, I, I couldn't afford the regular ro- rockets, like the Boeing and Lockheed rockets are too expensive. 
And, uh, still are? Yeah, still very expensive. That's true. <laughs> I had uh, to, sorry. <laughs> Wait, I may I jump in here for a sec? Because the anecdote you brought up of wanting to change government policy and, and inspire the world to have a Mars program, if you will, whether it's popular uprising or, or space programs at the government level, I think it's a fascinating anecdote because, in a sense, what you were saying is I, as an individual, want to start a entity, business or otherwise, that will catalyze change, even beyond the company level or the industry level. And I see a parallel in other initiatives you've taken on in that if you look at uh, uh, the goal of Tesla under your leadership, it is to usher the transition to all vehicles being electric, not just the cars that currently are produced by Tesla. And uh, with Powerwall and SolarCity, arguably the, the description is one of ushering in a, a, a wholesale shift to renewable energy. Many of the solutions required wouldn't be provided by the companies you're starting. And so as I, as I deal in entrepreneurship as a venture capitalist every day, we, we see this incredible scope of ambition here that is breathtaking. Like change the world, which Steve Jobs and others talk about, in a company, maybe shifting an industry. But we're talking about shifting like, the entire zeitgeist of the world, in a sense, and maybe eventually other worlds. So my question is, do you, do you start always in your mind with that as a... Like, as, like where's the starting point? Is it... Okay, I see this arc of a story, like, like the Mars example or renewable energy, and then do you pull back to where's the best product to un get it unstuck? Like, why isn't this happening? And, like, if I solve that problem, then it unlocks value. Like, how does that happen in your mind? Um, sure. So, um, I mean, I should say, like, the, the, when, when we started uh, SpaceX and Tesla, I mean, I really thought the probability of success was very low. I mean, it wasn't like, I think, oh, we'll definitely be successful. I thought, I thought we'd be like maybe 10% likely. Well, uh, yeah. Um, and and then, okay, we came very close to both companies not succeeding in 2008. You know, we had the, we had, we'd had three failures of the SpaceX rocket. Um, so we were zero for three. Um, we had the crazy financial re recession, like the Great Recession. Um, the... Tesla financing round had fallen apart because it's like, pretty hard to raise money for a startup car company if GM and Chrysler are going bankrupt. Um, like people, oh, it's partly for the upside. <laughs> yeah, it's, that was a tricky one. Um, and, um, you know, unfortunately, at the end of 2008, the, the fourth launch, which was, that was the last launch we had money for, uh, worked for SpaceX. And, um, and then we, we closed the Tesla financing round, as you know, uh, Christmas Eve 2008. <laughs> last hour of the last day that it was possible. Yeah, and thanks to you. Uh, for those who don't know, it's the most extraordinary act of entrepreneurial zeal and commitment I've ever seen where Elon personally saved Tesla in those hours. Like when no one else would write a check, he spoke for it all, and that flipped the mentality from fear to greed, and everyone joined the bandwagon, and, and everything changed from, you know, divoting into the ground to success. But you were willing to go like net negative personally of, of his entire net worth and it's it's a remarkable story um, oh, thanks for supporting by the way that was much <laughs> yeah. much appreciated yeah. we were happy to fall right behind in line but but it was all him um, so I guess on, on this this idea though of the big picture I'm curious in the way I heard you just now describe the greenhouse and the headlines is interesting do the marketing headlines flash through your mind as you introduce new products that are a step to a much grander vision. I'm, I'm, I'm curious because it seems like it has two purposes, like getting employees, customers, everyone really gung-ho about the vision, but it also makes it larger than life in so many ways. Well, if, I mean, if you're trying to convince the public to do something, you have to say, okay, how's this going to read? Um, and what message are we going to try to convey? Um, what will people respond to? What would I respond to if I was, you know, sort of an objective member of the public? And... Um, so that's, that, that's really, you know, if, if you're trying to change people's minds or get people fired up about something, um, then you've got to think, okay, what, what's that message? What, what's going to get them really excited? Um, and that's really good advice, by the way, for all the engineering students. Yeah. That here. Yeah. I was one as well. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, there's an there's a adjunct sometimes to these grand visions like making humanity a multiplanetary species or shifting us to renewable energy or making all vehicles electric that has a purpose-driven element to it. There's a higher calling than the quarterly bottom line. In fact, there was a Tesla quarterly report, I remember famously, where the opening, the literally opening line was, uh, while profits are not a priority, comma, 
you know, nevertheless. In the short term. Nevertheless, exactly. Yeah. And, it, and it occurred, I was struck by it at first, and it did occur to me that it's not like a mis, some sort of misdirected fiduciary question. To me, it seems like how could you lead an industry transition if your business model was worse than what's already there? Meaning, like, if you weren't right. more profitable in the long term and a better business, why would anyone shift, right? So it almost seems like with the right purpose, yeah. profits follow. Yeah, well, if, if, if you make a, if, if, if the, you know, if, if the output is more valuable than the inputs, which is really, that's, that's, that's profit. Like the output's more valuable than the input. Um, th- th- that, that, that says you have a useful company. Um, so, it, but no, in, in a high growth scenario, you have a lot more inputs for, for future outputs so that you have negative cash flow and lack of profitability, and, which we currently have at Tesla. Um, but in the, in the long term, of course, that has to be that that has to be fixed. There, there can't be negative cash flow in the long term, um, and that there needs to be um, a net positive output, um, uh, which is sort of profits in the, in the long term. Uh, but in the short term, when there's high growth, that 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 doesn't it isn't the most sensible thing. And, and then there's also related things like open sourcing patents and yeah. acts that, to me, relate to the purpose. Let's let the whole auto industry do this. And I'm, so. I, I'm curious, what do you see from your vantage point as the benefits of a purpose-driven company? Meaning, when you have this thing that every employee and customer knows is the purpose of the company, how do you see that flowing through to benefits for the company? Well, I think I think having a purpose certainly is going to attract the, the, the very best talent in the world because um, if, if people can, if, if there's something that's intrinsically enjoyable, and the, the financial rewards are good, but then also it's something that's going to genuinely change the world. Then that's, I think that's a pretty powerful motivator. Um, and um, but I don't think like everything needs to change the world. You know, I mean honestly, <laughs> like there's lots of like useful things that people do. And uh, I mean I think really it should be like a usefulness optimization. Like just say like, is, is what I'm doing as useful as it could be? And You're talking about the, the goal of an organization or a goal career. in general. Yeah, and. and um, you know, just if, even if something isn't changing the world, if it's make, making people's lives better, I think that's that's great. And uh, you know, if, even if something's like making only people's lives only slightly better, but it's a large number of people, then kind of like the area under the curve sure. is is quite good. Um, so is that mathematical first principles a point? Utility yeah, and number exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Like I mean, sort of like one could say like. So, like, is, like, some app really making people's lives better? If it's, but if it's affecting a lot of people, uh, even in a small way, then, yeah, the, the sort of area is good. Hmm. So let's shift gears a little bit since it is Future Fest. Um, looking to the future, right? We, we started 30 years in the past, but the future keeps accelerating. So let's maybe look 20 years in the future for an equivalent leap. Arguably, five years in the future might be equivalent to the past 30, but let's say 20. So the year 2035, what does the future look like, as far as you can tell? What would you... Uh, 20, oh, sorry, 20 years. 20, yeah, 2035. Okay. Yeah, 20 years. Um, it's always really tricky to predict the future. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, some of it's pretty obvious. Like, computing power is going to be just crazy. Um, and the, the really, the big change is the cost of computing power. Mm. Um, not so much the sort of circuit density, sort of the Moore's Law thing. But if you if you look at say what is the actual um, you know, d- dollars per you know uh, per instruction, mm-hmm. um, and, and that that is dro- I mean that, that that cost is is dropping exponentially. Mm-hmm. I mean if you think about it like a, like if you're making a computer just you're rearranging silicon and copper, mm-hmm. you know so if, on a, on a little chip, and once the capital cost of the development and the the chip plant is paid for. Uh, the, the, I mean, the, the marginal cost of a chip is very, very tiny. Um, so I think we'll see massively parallel computers uh, and, and computing power and storage being, you know, as, as really as much as you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting. I too start with that. Like, if I, I don't know what else to predict, but as a foundational for thing, sure. this seems like the safest starting, you know, premise. But then. What does that ripple through to in fields like genetics and AI, which you mentioned, autonomous driving, space-related topics? I mean, just ubiquitous computing everywhere. Um, I, I think like AI is going to be incredibly sophisticated in 20 years. Mm. Um, the, 
When does the I mean, first it's, wake it's, up? It, like it seems to be accelerating. And the, the tricky thing about predicting things when there's an exponential is that an exponential looks like looks linear close up. Um, and, and, but it's actually, it's not linear. So, uh, and, and AI appears to be accelerating, um, from what I can see. Um, and do you, for that, do you look at autonomous driving and point AIs, like the Siri-like functionality as your yeah. guidepost? Um, well, I had sort of a debate about someone like, is AI accelerating or not? And the, the, like, he was saying, well, what's the y-axis? Mm-hmm. You know, if, you, if it's accelerating... Um, you got T on the x-axis, but what's, what's the y-axis? And is it, well, I thought about that, and I think you could have a recursive y-axis so that uh, if, if at any point in time your, your predictions for AI are coming sooner or later, um, that, that actually would help define whether it's uh, accelerating or not. Whatever that axis was. So you mentioned it's, like it's a net change. a recursive axis. Like, so if, if in any given year, if you, if you find your predictions are... are um, Going further out, or coming further, or coming closer in, that that actually, you know, is, is one way to think of acceleration. Because like, like, cause otherwise, what's the what's the qualitative or quantitative measure of mm-hmm. of AI? Um, I'm saying, like, if a given technology is always 20 years in the future. Yeah, if, if it's always 20 years in the future, it's like more logarithmic. <laughs> um, so does uh, AI seem like it's one of the most fastly accelerating things that you're aware of? Yes. Um, and I, I can certainly see that with, with autonomous driving, where, um, you know, three years ago, I thought it was 10 years away. Mm-hmm. And that two years ago, I thought it was five years away. Now I think it's three years away or less than three years away. Wow. So and when you say away, like, like, like released to market, available for consumer adoption as opposed to prototyping? No, I mean like the, like the technology works. There's a sort of second question as to when regulators would approve it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but like Good luck with that. <laughs> the technology works, in, in a, t- technology works as a general solution. So like gotcha. autonomous driving like basically Across works anywhere. So it could be sooner for point things, like highway only or... I mean, highway only, we're already in public beta with this at Tesla. So um, we'll be hopefully in the next several weeks releasing to, to all of the cars that have the autopilot hardware, which is all cars built in like roughly the last 12 months. Wow. Wow. And so it, this seems like one of those things that once you've experienced it, the inevitability of it becomes more apparent. Kind of like first time I sat in an electric vehicle, it's just so clear. And same with autonomous vehicles. Um, do you think that will help? persuade public opinion and like like the regulatory question is an interesting one because as technology continues to accelerate human nature doesn't and acceptance of change I'm just not sure if there's like as we look out in the future should we assume that no matter how fast something like Moore's Law accelerates there's always the counterbalancing force of human nature and habit um, yeah I mean this, yeah I think yeah there's always going to be mm-hmm. sort of um it's always going to be human nature, um, and it's so difficult to predict. I think what 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 that will, how that will affect things. Um, <clears throat> but um, I mean, I'm not sure if I fully answer your question. So in, in, in terms of what what I think twenty five. Oh yeah, please. Um, so for for sure, ubiquitous computing, um, AI that's beyond anything uh, like the public appreciates today. Um, I think we'll have um, most of the new vehicles being produced. Uh, being electric, um, and we'll be probably have a super majority of energy being produced being uh, sustainable. So I think I think we're on headed solar primarily track. in your mind. Primarily solar, yeah. Um, and um, so I think those I think that those are sort of some good things. Like I think we'll be in, on a, hopefully on a good path for sustainable energy. Um, yeah, sooner is always better, but I think by 2035, I think we'll be substantially. Um, like m- most of transport, most of new energy being produced will be sustainable. Um, broadband everywhere? Broadband everywhere, yeah. Um, Mars colony? And hopefully a, hopefully a small base on Mars, a small city on Mars in 20 years, yeah. I think, C- I mean, I city, think, uh, did I hear? Well, okay, fine, town, village. <laughs> <laughs> Hamlet. <laughs> I mean, that's exciting. I mean... That could get people fired up about the future. Yeah, I, I do. I, I agree, exactly. I, I think that uh, the idea of being multi species and getting out there and exploring the stars 
is one of those really inspiring, exciting things. I mean, just as Apollo was incredibly inspiring um, to everyone around the world, and even those, I mean, only a very tiny number of people went there, but, I mean, vicariously, we all went there. And, and I think that's true of, of if, if we have a Mars base as well. Um, and the, it's very important that we have things that are exciting and inspiring in the future. Because otherwise, why get up in the morning? You know, it's just about one sort of sad problem after another. <laughs> <laughs> it's like life, life's not worth living. Are there, are there any other things that excite you a lot about the future beyond the multiplanetary species, perhaps AI, uh, it may scare you, as well as excite you, um, the autonomous vehicles? Are there any other planks that you think, looking forward 20 years, would be like, this is what I really get excited about? Well, um, I mean, so for sure, for sure, Mars and sustainable transport, and like those items, I think, I think are really and sustainable energy. Those are, I think, really cool things. Um, and uh, I mean, in terms of getting excited about, it, I mean, it's. Uh, uh, I think we'll probably start seeing like more like truly cyborg activity, like hmm. human brain inter- like, like like brain computer interfaces. Okay. Um, like there's, there's Alongside a, the AIs that are purely yeah, synthetic? Yeah, I think so. It's the only way we can relate, I think, you know, and have a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are amazing things happen, like, mm-hmm. happening these days. Like there's, um, they've been able to figure out how to do an artificial hippocampus um, in, in rats and monkeys, and, um, and now they're looking at, uh, at doing that to solve severe epilepsy. Uh, about half of severe epilepsy cases originate in the hap- um, sorry, hippocampus. And... Uh, and by having sort of an artificially augmented hippocampus, they can actually solve, I believe, um, the severe epilepsy cases. Oh, so it's, it's like, I'm like, wow. And you can, you can write, read and write information back to the chip from your brain at the individual neuron level, wow. like today. Pretty exciting. Yeah, the whole field of biology and things inspired by biology and the information systems biology... Uh, Fascinate me personally as a, as a computer science-oriented uh, person. Um, before I go to the student questions, um, which I'm about to do, I, there was one last story I wanted to share that we experienced together and ask your thoughts about it. We were in Hawthorne, Texas, when the grasshopper vehicle oh, yeah. occur, uh, happened. I mean, yeah. a spectacular explosion right in front of us. And Right. And, exactly. I mean, I brought, I brought the SpaceX board out to take a look at one of the vertical takeoff and landing tests, and, of course, that's the one that blows up. Oh, and we're all in a tent, you know, like, with a glass of wow. water. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you feel the repercussions. And yeah. then walking through it's like the a, steam. Yeah, pull out a ride. It's a rapid, unscheduled disassembly. That's right. A ride. Yes, rapid, unscheduled disassembly. Anyone in rocketry, like a hobbyist or, or professionally, knows what that one is. Every component part is just strewn, strewn across. And we, as we walked, one of the other board members asked, and maybe they, in a cheering up kind of method, with some quoting Bill Gates or somebody that said, you know, if you haven't failed, then you're not learning, or that's a paraphrase of the quote. And I remember your reply, uh, and I have it written as a quote because I want to put it on a placard. Given the options, I prefer to learn from success, which I think is <laughs> a great comeback. And so I guess I was curious in general, what do you think of the Silicon Valley mantra, fail fast, fail often, or as Esther Dyson says, always make new mistakes, as, as if failure is the crucible of learning? I'm curious if you had any further thoughts on that and that maybe off-the-cuff comment you made out there. Well, I mean, there are, there are many that sort of, I mean, I think it's sort of, there's like some entropic basis for this. Like there are many more ways to fail than to succeed. So, mm-hmm. you, I mean, you have to explore, I mean, particularly like for a rocket, there's like a thousand ways a thing can fail and like one way it can work. So uh, you, could, you could have a lot of rocket failures to explore all the ways in which you could fail. Um, so, but, but I do think that one great thing about Silicon Valley is that failure is not a, not a big stigma. So it's like if you, if you try hard and it doesn't work out, uh, that's okay. Like you can um, learn from that and you know, do another company and it's not a big deal. And I think mm-hmm. that's, that's really one of the great things about Silicon Valley. Interesting. Do you also, I'm curious if either on the, well, it seems to me that on the system design side, you can accommodate a, a likely failure of subcomponents. And, and so much of the elegance of, let's say, a Falcon 9 or a Falcon 9 Heavy as, as an ultimate incarnation of this vision of how the rocket should be built to say, hey, parts will fail, thing, but here's how the system can succeed. And I'm curious if there's any other thoughts along that, how to, how to accommodate anticipated failure, and then also maybe inter like in managerially, is there ways that you motivate the team either in advance of failure to, to coach them on, hey, this is going to happen, 
or in the aftermath of failure to get them fired up to solve it and, and move forward when it might be dark times. And like, for example, when you, the notions like failure to launch, uh, uh, you know, exploding on the pad, you know, there's all these, it, it's a very visual, it's public spectacle when you have a setback in the rocket industry. And I'm curious how you manage around failure. Uh, I mean, it, I think it's, it's like quite, quite painful and difficult, honestly. Um, <laughs> and it's, it feels terrible. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the company is sort of looking to, you know, me to, you know, rally them, and so I do. Um, but I honestly feel super bad. It's like a punch in the gut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember, it's almost like, a time, like the stages of grief, I remember, in Texas, it's kind of like sort of denial, and then <laughs> it sort of hits us at dinner. It's like, oh, my God, what just happened? Yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean... It, it's particularly with rockets. It's it's just a really like a, a rockets. Rockets space is hard, and rockets tend to fail, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, even when you've got like a lot of really smart people working super hard to minimize the probability of failure, it's still it's still there, and it's um, and it's you know it's it's quite significant. Um, and um, you know, and people have asked me like, well, why why are rockets you know especially hard? Um, and and the, the, you know part of it is like. Everything has to work the, the first time. Like, there's, there's no, you can't do a recall, you can't patch it. It's, got, it's like nine minutes to orbit or it's over. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then the, the you, you, never, you, can't, you can never test the rocket completely in the environment that it's actually going to experience. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you can't fully recreate something that's moving super fast in a vacuum um, on the surface of Earth. Like, you can only really rec- recreate that on, in space. So, the limit of the simulation tools? Is that a limit of the simulation tools today, or is that a fundamental? Yeah, absolutely. The, if, if, there's, if there's any error between the simulation and reality, and there's always some amount of error, mm-hmm. um, then then that, that can result in a failure. Yep. Um, so it's a really really tricky one. It's like um, in a software analogy, it would be like if you had to write a whole bunch of software modules um, and you can never run them together. Um, and you couldn't run them on the target computer. Like, like when you're testing them, you don't have to test them individually mm-hmm. and not in the actual computer that they're going to run on. Gotcha. Then you put, them, put all the modules together, run it for the first time in a, in a completely different or very different computer, and it has to run with no bugs. <laughs> that is difficult. Yeah. The, the software analogies to rocket design are deep. The modular reuse, I mean, there's many of these. Like, for those who aren't familiar with it's not like this is an aerospace engineer by traditional training coming, but, but is in fact radically changing the industry. I think applying a CS perspective to industry after industry, I'm like, how would, how would you know, a computer scientist or a physicist approach the problem, which oftentimes is a solution very unlike the industry incumbents. There's, there's a certain elegance to it, well, at least from the outside, outside observer like myself. Um, let me switch, if I may, to some student questions, which will be completely in a different direction. Um, first one comes from Nick Zhu, in, uh, an architectural design coach. So this will be switching more to the other side of our brain for a moment. What do you look for in design and related, if you'd like, what do you look for in art? Design might be more immediately relevant, but that's where he's coming from. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think there's... Um, I mean... You, you, you want to make something beautiful. I mean, you want to, to trigger whatever fundamental aesthetic algorithms are like. Like in your brain, there's you have, I think, some intrinsic uh, elements that that represent beauty, um, and and that that trigger the, the emotion of appreciation of beauty in in your in your mind. Um, and I think that these are these are actually relatively consistent among people. I mean, not, not completely. Um, some people like you know, not everyone likes the same thing, but there are there's a lot of commonality. Um, and and and, and there, yeah, and there, there are the, but but I think it, it is important to com, to combine aesthetic design with functionality. Mm-hmm. Like the the thing that's like if you say like what was really hard about say the Model S or the Model X um, was to combine aesthetics and um, utility, so to to balance the two, 
Um, you can make a car look very good by giving it sort of um, certain proportions, like making it sort of low and slim. Mm. And, 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 um, uh, but but if, you, uh, if you do that, the, the utility is significantly affected. Um, so the big challenge with, the, say, the Model S was trying to figure out how do we get five adults plus two kids because we want to have sort of seven-seater. It seems like the Dragon and every Tesla has room for seven. <laughs> seven. Five children, I can see. Yeah. That might be an important design parameter. <laughs> I definitely don't think we should take the whole family on the spacecraft. <laughs> uh, but but, uh, but, but that, like, the big challenge with the, like, with, with the S was having a car that had a high utility and looked good. Um, and the same with the X. Um, so, like, it, like, with the to make a sports car look good is relatively easy, um, but to make a sedan look good or an SUV look good is is quite difficult. Um, and um, and I think another principle is you want to have it feel bigger on the inside than it looks on the outside, mm. um, and that, that's also a really hard thing to do. Um, and then r- really pay attention to the little details. The the, the nuances of, of design and shape and form and function and um, the you know just the the way it looks in different lights and when something's off the little thing how do you experience that it drives me bananas <laughs> yeah um, I mean it's and it, the, the the problem is like if you it, you can train yourself to to pay attention to the tiny details I think almost anyone can. Um, Although it, 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 this is a very much double-edged sword because then you see all the little details. Um, and then little things drive you crazy. Um, so, but like most people don't, they don't see, they don't consciously see the small details, but they, they do subconsciously see them. Like you, you, you sort of, your mind takes in a gestalt of the overall, you know, the, an overall impression. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you know if something is appealing or not, even though you may not be able to Point out exactly why, hmm. um, and it's it's the summation of, of these many small details. So most of us experience it as a, oh, I think that's ugly, or I think that's beautiful, or like, wow, that's elegant, but yeah. can't break it down. Or, you mentioned yeah, something yeah. in passing, like you can train yourself in this, though. Yeah, you can train oh. yourself. I think you can make yourself pay attention to to why um, you're essentially to bring the subconscious awareness into conscious awareness. God, I wish I could do that. How do you do that? <laughs> just, just pay really close attention. Almost like a meditation on the object and trying to find the details. Like, why do I not like this? Is that what? Yeah, just look, look closely and carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, for any given object, it's that it's, it's geometry. It's. Uh, um, I heard someone whisper Steve Jobs, and that thought occurred to me as well. I worked briefly with him, and. I, I could only experience it as a visceral agitation with imperfection. And, and, and like, that's just wrong. Like, that has yeah. to be fixed. I, I, I have to turn it off, otherwise it, I can't go through life. It's just, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, the, the world around you or even in... You have to, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, because there's, there's always something wrong somewhere all the time. And so <laughs> um, it, you really have to turn it off, otherwise, you know... You just get the like the list of the mental list of things that are wrong just drives you crazy. I just wish there's a way you could just like record it for everyone else to go fix. Like, it's like this running tally, right? Oh my god. Um, so uh, let me go to uh, one other question. I, I found that one interesting. I, I, I had no idea where that was going to go, so I really appreciate that question, Nick. Thank you. Um, let's see which one of these do you want. There's some combination of questions. Uh, let me mention both, and you can pick which one you like more because they both relate to colonizing Mars. One comes from Henning Rodol, a PhD candidate in civil and environmental engineering, which just asks, Elon, given your plan to bring a, bring a million colonists to Mars, what are the pressing future technologies that need to be developed in order to support a robust and thriving surface colony? So it's technology for, I guess, survival. And then maybe related from the Stanford Space Initiative students, how do you envision humans governing a separate planet? I'm not sure if you sure. had to think about that yet. I thought a little bit about those things. I mean, the, obviously, the, like the first challenge is just getting there at all, and like that's, you know, so SpaceX is working super hard on figuring out just how to get large numbers of people and cargo to Mars. Um, and I, I think you know, we've got something that I think works at a sort of fundamental physics and economics level, so it's like a question of figuring out the detailed design, mm-hmm. um, which we're working on. We're only spending like half an hour a week on it, because we've like 
pressing near-term priorities, but I'm kind of excited about how it's coming together. Um, so so getting, just getting that transport thing solved, I think, will, will then open up a tremendous uh, number of opportunities for people on Mars. Mm-hmm. You know, just like you know, having the Union Pacific Railroad to California, mm-hmm. um, and the you know, and, and look at what what you know resulted after well, that. The system of other companies figured yeah, out. It's like what once are you, you do get there, then you get the, you, then the, the opportunities for entrepreneurs are, are tremendous. Um, that ranges everything from you know everything you can imagine, like starting the first, you know like the first Italian restaurant or something on Mars. You know, it's like somebody's got to do it, and it'll be kind of cool. Um, you know, like a iron re- an iron refinery. Mm-hmm. You know, like local like resource foundry. Yep. You know, the like the the, the the entire base of industry, um, and um, and then there probably be things like that are just unique to Mars. Mm-hmm. Um, but but we we got to we got to get that you know effectively that Union Pacific Railroad there in order to get get the entrepreneurs there that. And, and, and then create a fertile environment for them to uh, create uh, companies. Um, so that that's that's. Mm-hmm. So so once you're there, it's it's, it's going to be I think a lot of exciting things that can be done. Um, and and in, in the beginning, you know, people would live in kind of glass domes, uh, but but over time, it would terraform Mars and make it like Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so so I think it'd just be a lot of super exciting things that are hard to predict, just like. When they're building the Union Pacific, they it would hard, nobody would have predicted Silicon Valley and mm-hmm. Hollywood. Right. You know that that would have been like an urbanization in general. Yeah. And, you know. uh, well, the California would be like mm-hmm. the most popular state in the country. <laughs> like they'd be like, that sounds crazy. <laughs> <laughs> For them, gold is discovered. Right. Yeah. Um, so and so the yeah I, I think like it's, it's really. And come on SpaceX or you know maybe other organizations to figure out how to get there. Well, otherwise, nothing else matters. Right. Um, and then once you get there, there's a lot of sort of yeah a lot, a lot that can be done. Um, from a governance standpoint, um, I mean obviously ultimately the governance of Mars will be up to the Martians. But the um, it's cool that we have a name for them. Now. You become yeah. a Martian when you go there. Um, but but I I think if you said like how would you do democracy 2.0, you know, or like some a new, mm-hmm. new version. I think we'd probably have more of a direct democracy than a representative democracy. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, when the when the United States was formed, it was really it was impossible to have a direct democracy. Like mm-hmm. you, there was, it was, like you'd have, even sending a letter took weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was no way that people could like vote directly on issues. You had to have representatives. Interesting. So I think um, uh, I think. Probably there would be a more direct democracy. And is this thing about the latency of communication from yeah, Earth? Yeah, communication it be its own latency thing. And just like communication errors and communication latency. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you have letters that, that take weeks to get anywhere, mm-hmm. uh, would, would have made um, you know, governance almost impossible. Um, I think if, if if it hadn't been a representative democracy, and you had a lot of people who couldn't even read or or write. You know, so. Hmm. Um, that's fascinating. I was just wondering, if, if you were to start over with a clean sheet of paper on governance, is, do you think a framework that could be envisioned that encompasses other sentient beings to come, meaning the AIs and others who might clamor for their rights alongside, right? right? Um, yes, it's difficult to predict, but I can say, like, I think probably we would, elect, would aim for a more direct democracy. Um, and then uh, and, and I was talking to Larry Page about this, and he had a, like a good suggestion, like we should limit the number of words in a law. Because mm. um, like we have these like thousand-page laws that get mm-hmm. passed, and like nobody's read them. The Twitter equivalent of parsimony. Yeah, like I don't know, a thousand-word letter count or something mm-hmm. like that. Like if you can't if you can't write the law in a thousand words, then probably it shouldn't be there. Um, <laughs> um, and you know, just we, we shouldn't have you know a, a single law passed that's like the size of Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> that's right. Um, and and like literally, not a single person in Congress has read the whole thing. Yeah, it's like the tax code—it's unscrutable. Yes, exactly. So, that, so there's that, and then I think um, laws also have an infinite lifespan unless they're given some sort of, you know, sunset period. So probably it would be good to default laws mm-hmm. to to have a, a sunset period. Like, and if it's not if it's not good enough to be renewed, then it then it goes away. Um, and uh, and maybe some hysteresis 
um, in, that, in making it easier to remove a law than to put one in place. Um, mm-hmm. You can just imagine, because like over time, like the, the body of law just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So like you, like how do you avoid that? Um, and, and, you, and you have inertia associated with laws. Um, and so maybe you know, it would take 60% to create a law, but only 40% to remove a law. Hmm. Um, How interesting. How fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Those, yeah those, something those, like that. Those are like the, 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 the rules of a constitutional democracy have such a profound impact. And uh, to have a, uh, a new playground would be fantastic. Um, there, there's something embedded in what you said a moment ago that, that I want to highlight on a transition to perhaps a closing question. Uh, you, I heard in passing, you know, I think about some of these things about a half hour a week, if, if I heard you right. And um, this is, I think, a profound thing to to, to dwell on is that you know he's changing the world in so many areas and not many entrepreneurs I see get and myself in, included enamored with all of the possibilities of a future Mars base of the terraforming of the every aspect of it that might need to come into being and, and I find myself often distracted by those future questions that are a little less relevant today and what you just heard was we gotta solve the railway first like let me put 90% 95% of my effort into that and not get distracted by all the other interesting questions that need to come later. And I remember uh, a few years ago, maybe three or four years ago, trying to get you to brainstorm with Craig Venter about, you know, doing a sample return from Mars and sending a genetic sequencer there to help understand life there that might exist, et cetera. And I remember profoundly that the response was, that is a really interesting topic, but i got to get these rockets to work first before that's going to be relevant to me and let me hunker down on what's important here. And that ability to prioritize it uh, on the stepping stones to a huge vision. It, it's, this, it's this interesting dichotomy, like not just pure visionary scattered across many things alone. It's clear sense of where we're heading, chaining back to the present and making sure we're taking the right steps to not you know, fumble the future, if you will. I think, I, I wish we could all do that uh, in the way we try to implement change. Um, so let me move, if I made a one last question, which could be broad or not, which is there's a lot of people here from all kinds of parts of the world. And I think everyone who hears your story, uh, you know, an immigrant from South Africa through Canada to the U.S. taking on four or five different industries with great aplomb and success um, is inspiring. Uh, but it's not just that you've had business success or technology success. It's that you really are changing the world for the better in these areas. Um, and so I guess maybe for as a closing question, again, looking from the present to the future, what do you see as the sort of the biggest pressing problems that need to be addressed? This may, in fact, require you to pull that filter off for a moment on the things of the world that are broken. And if, if everyone here in the audience could be a change agent themselves in their area of passion, what would you hope to catalyze today? You could say, guys, go solve this big, hairy problem and figure out why it's broken. Um, I, you know, honestly, I, I don't think everyone needs to go, you know, try to solve like some big, big world-changing problem. I, I mean, I think that, like, if... I, I really think, like, we should just think, like, are we doing something that's useful mm-hmm. um, to the world? Like, if, if you're doing something useful, that's great. Um, like, imagine it's like animal you know, farm. I really think... Some things like, are more useful. Sure. Um, <laughs> sure, but... but uh, Like, I mean, maybe like, one of your personal things. Like, I just think like, that, like, yeah. like your sort of a usefulness optimization mm-hmm. is, is, like, that's, like, a really good thing. Um, you know, if, if you've done something that's useful to your fellow human beings, that's, you've done a really good thing. Um, and uh, people should feel pr- proud of doing that. Um, you know, it doesn't, doesn't always have to be something that's going to change the world. I mean, sometimes the world should just keep going in a particular direction. Help the world. Yeah, it might be, the, might be going in the right direction. In, 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 and, I mean, in a lot of ways, the, the world is, in, we're in, we are in, in great shape in that if you look at, say, violent crimes um, you know, um, per, per capita in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. It's at an like, all-time low. Um, uh, we're actually quite prosperous uh, uh, and, you know, compared to in, in history. Um, and, um, you know, I think there's a lot of things to feel good about in terms of how the world is today. Um, access to information is incredible. I mean, uh, you know, anyone with like a $100 device could ha- has access to basically all the world's information, which is an incredible thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, so I, I honestly, I just think, like, the best thing for people to try to do is say, like, hey, what is something that I can do that would really be, be useful uh, to the world? And just do that, you know? That's mm-hmm. great. 
Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us today and Future Fest and Forging the Future. So just very quickly, uh, on behalf of all the faculty and staff affiliated with STVP, uh, we'd like to thank President Hennessy, uh, the School of Engineering, and our home Department of Management, Science and Engineering, uh, Matthew Tews, Stanford Arts, and, and the amazing staff here at Bing that was so helpful to us this morning. Uh, DFJ, obviously, for your incredible sponsorship of FutureFest and also for your continued long-term support of STVP and our hope to create entrepreneurship education opportunities for Stanford students. And of course, we offer our most sincere thanks. Please help me in thanking again Elon Musk and Steve Jurvetson. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.